anywhere, but I want you to know that our superintendent is called all over the United States to speak. And so we're very privileged to give him time. He's going to have speak about heart talk. Brother Grant, you take your liberty. The Lord bless you. Thank you, Sister Barnett. <clears throat> and praise the Lord, everybody. Praise God. God is so very, very good. Praise God. What a great way to spend the day. We've been longing for hot weather, and it's 88 degrees outside with 90% humidity. So you're very fortunate to be in here right now. Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord. Would you do that with me? Thank you, God. Father, Lord, we love you so very, very much. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Oh, hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now let's give the Lord a big hand clap. Praise God. And you may be seated. It is a privilege to be here with all the ladies of our district and some from other districts. It's good to have Sister Klepper in our district, Sister Spears. I listened to Sister Spears. I was outside the door. And when it came time for me to come in, the doors were all locked. So I had to go way back there and make my way down. But... Uh, we're always thrilled to come to the ladies' retreat. This is such a successful uh, event and so enthusiastically attended, and your involvement's always that way. We have a great leader in Sister Barnett. She is just a very precious lady of God, Sister Barnett. God bless you. Then our Secretary and Treasurer for our lady, Sister Rutherford. Uh, she's just such a sweetheart, you know. <laughs> then our ladies' committee, they're doing a great job here in the state of Wisconsin, and Sister Erin, and then, of course, uh, on the very end up there, the sweetest and prettiest lady in all the world, Darlene Grant. <laughs> God bless <her. coughs> Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Thank you, Brother Engelhart. I hope that you have your Bibles with you because we will be talking from the Bible. Uh, the ladies asked me to just speak from my heart. This is the reason why they called it heart talk, not stick with any particular subject. So I wrote a lot of little notes down that I wanted to share with you, and after I put them all together or after I wrote them all down, I thought maybe I'd put them in some kind of an outline form. That can be very difficult when you're changing subjects. But I decided that we would start out by going directly to the Bible, 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And we would read verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, I would like for you to follow along with me because I will be speaking primarily from the Bible. This will be a Bible-type study. 
2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. This is a big, big problem that Pentecostals have, but not nearly as big a problem as the world has. <clears throat> because we want to measure everything according to what someone else has done or what somebody else is doing. So after taking all my notes and taking a careful look at them, I decided that I would title this Keeping Up with the Joneses. <laughs> Materialism has really spoiled Americans. It really has. Materialism is just another way of, of saying worldliness has spoiled Americans. It's really hard to separate. Uh, and the reason why it's so hard to separate is because it's all right to be to have materials, but you should not be materialistic-minded. And that's a big problem. It's all right to have riches, but the Bible speaks of people who are pierced through with many sorrows. That riches have a way of deceiving you. Jesus said in the parable of Matthew 13, the cares of this life and the riches of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, pardon me, sprang up and choked them. And a lot of Pentecostals are not burned out. They are frozen out or choked out. Anyone in our busy society who does not pray regularly, seek God regularly, will feel burned out. Because the Bible tells us that worldly lust war against the soul. And we can become so confused and so frustrated. Now this study today is on relationships. I want to talk to you about your relationship with God from maybe a little bit different angle, but an angle in which uh, some of our ladies on our committee and also our ladies that are in leadership talk to me uh, concerning. So I want to share some things with you. Now the problem that we have when we compare ourselves with ourselves is that because all of us are forever changing, we do not end up with a proper product when we compare ourselves with something that is in this process of evolution. I could tell a little story, and this would probably <clears throat> get the point across a little bit better. Remember reading years ago, back when I was in high school, of a man <clears throat> who in a very small rural community pressed charges against an individual. The man at the country store pressed charges against the man who brought butter to him. And the reason why they brought butter to him is because he put the pound of butter on his scales only to find out that it wasn't a pound of butter. It was far less than a pound. Now the problem is that the man who processed the butter at home, churned the butter in an old home churn, uh, his scales were broken. And what he was doing was that he was measuring the pound of butter by something else. Now, the story went on to say that in court, in this little country town, western town, in court, 
This is what was determined. That the man who was selling the pound of butter for less than a pound was not really guilty of selling it for less than a pound. And the reason why is because he measured his butter by a pound of bread that he purchased from the store where he sold the butter. And the reason why that he got off was because the man at the store, his scales were broken, and he was measuring his loaf of bread by the pound of butter that he purchased every day, thinking that the, the gentleman selling the butter had a valid scale for which he would weigh things. But both of them had broken scales. So after a while, you can see how that there was a diminishing of the quantity of the product because both were measuring by each other and they were not going back to the scale to measure. Well, all of a sudden a repairman came by and repaired the store scales. And the man thought, well, I'll just check up on the pound of butter I'm receiving, only to find out that uh, he was getting far less than what he was paying for. But he was measuring his pound of butter by a loaf of bread that he purchased from his accuser, and he was getting far less also. Now, this is what happens to us when we do not use the Bible as the manual of life. You've heard me make that statement many, many times. And I think that there, if there ever was a time that, that we need to really take a careful look at our lives, we need to today, simply because there are so many hungry, seeking people in the world. And I can go much further than that to say this, that I believe that the women in our world are making such a powerful impact upon our society in the church world for the good in the world that is non-religious the impact is very devastating women have always throughout the scripture made a very astounding impact on everything that they put their hands to and I believe that women will play a very major role in the last day restoration of revival, the conserving of godly standards, the putting of the homes back together. I believe that. And the reason why is because they have always done this. Now, Einstein made this statement. He said that if everything in the world was diminishing at the same ratio, that nobody would ever know that things were getting smaller. And the reason why is because if, if, if you overnight shrunk, and yet everything around you shrunk, your feet would not hang off your bed, or your bed would not get bigger, You'd put your belt on, and if it had shrunken, then you would never know that things were getting smaller. He went on to say this would be true also if everything was growing at the same ratio, that you would never know that things were getting bigger because when you got bigger and you went and put your dress on, your dress would be bigger. 
And if you went to a scale to weigh yourself, and that scale, every component of that scale was larger, the springs had more tension and such, you would probably weigh the same. And so nobody would know that you were actually changing because they would be changing in the same ratio in which you were changing. And this is what happens, see, when we begin to gauge ourselves by ourselves or compare ourselves with each other. And people can get caught up in this to the point that it becomes an obsession to them. Uh, after a while, it's, the work of God becomes very secondary. And where you shop and where you buy your clothes and such becomes the primary issue of life. What you're going to wear to church and the selection of clothes seems to take more time and you spend more effort doing that than you do a prayer concerning services and such. I knew of a family one time that spent so much time getting ready for a vacation that when it came time to go on the vacation, they reevaluated and figured they didn't have enough time to take the vacation. <laughs> that they had spent so much time getting ready and uh, they knew that they had several... I'm looking out across the congregation because the lady who did that is here. So um, <clears throat> I thought maybe I'd just get a kind of a cold stare from her, but it's kind of a standing joke, you know. But uh, we, can get, we can get so involved in getting ready to do the work of the Lord that we can't do the work of the Lord. And it's simply because we put the emphasis in the wrong place. So when we start gauging ourselves by ourselves or by others, then naturally this is where we get off base. So we should not allow the Joneses, so to speak, to set the standards for us. There's, there's so many things that we could get caught up into this world that would just deviate us away from the real reason for our existence. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about a few things that are found in the Scripture that I feel that are extremely important. You see, inside of us is a natural tendency to look elsewhere for examples outside of the Bible. And I think you could trace that story all the way back to the beginning. And there wouldn't be any complication as far as our agreement on this. Now, a lot of our churches started Christian schools several years ago. We started one. We still have a Christian school. The reason why that we started Christian schools, and many of you homeschool, is because that you see the value of your children uh, being taught by godly people. You see the value of the instructors and tutors of your children being godly. And, and I really do appreciate that. But yet at the very same time in which all of us have become cognizant of the, the idea of our children being raised and being schooled by godly people, we have also turned ourselves in a direction back to a few things that I think we need to take a careful look at for ourselves. Now we tell our parents in our school that basically we're we're standing in your stead that if we teach them one thing at home or if we teach them one thing at school and they're being taught something else at home, then uh, the double standard can become very, very conflicting to a child. 
So when the child comes to our school and we are endorsing the teachings of the church and if that child is agreeing with it and yet in the home you're not endorsing those standards, those same, that same lifestyle, if you're not in harmony with the teachings of the church, then, then what happens? The, the, the child is forced to make a decision as to who he feels is right and who he feels is wrong. And you know how children are when their chemistry is changing. One day they can be so angelic, and the next day they can be so devilish. Uh, you see children coming down to the altar. They can come down to the altar. They can weep and cry, and by the time everybody gets down there to pray for them, they've already dried the tears out of their eyes, and they, they've already headed back to the pew. We've had some uh, smaller children to pray on our altar only to end up in a fight out in the vestibule before church was over. This is what uh, happens with, with children. They need constant care. They need someone to constantly guide them and direct them. Children, for the most part, must have role models. Uh, that's so necessary. And I think if there's anything that Americans have a problem with, and that is in our present society, the way that, it, that we are geared to think, that there is no constant culture that exists among us. We're in a constant cultural revolution. If you go to some foreign countries, let's say Europe, where uh, some of the countries have been more conservative, uh, you'll find that uh, it's not that way. And the invasion of rock music, for an example, now we're not talking about England or the United Kingdom when we say this, but the invasion of rock music into some of the Eastern European countries uh, met uh, society with much hostility. And the reason why is because it diametrically opposed the culture of that society. Because it, it taught children to rebel. It taught them to depend on drugs. It taught them not to uh, value the things that were very precious and those things that were valuable. And so as a result, uh, parents rose up with, uh, with a lot of hostility. But what we battle in America is a constant cultural revolution. Americans do not dress the same way now that they dressed 10 years ago, and they will not dress the same way 10 years from now that they dress now. So we have these new ideas always introduced to us. Now, I don't see any problem with that if we fully understand, however, the teachings of the Scripture that uh, has to do with our relationship with God Himself. The Bible teaches us that our elders are to be role models for us. The Bible teaches us that fathers are to be role models for children. The Bible teaches us also that mothers should be role models for their, their daughters. But uh, the problem is that in America, and even in the church we give very little thought to it, we promote role models uh, such as movie stars and rock stars and sports heroes. Uh, many, many, many of our children are caught up into this. I've gone in a lot of Christian homes in which uh, all over the walls were plastered pictures of movie stars and rock stars. and You may say, oh, I would never permit that. 
Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, you, sometimes you can say that when, you're, when your children are young, but when they get a little bigger and you see that they have subtle ways of placing pressure on you and, and such, it's easy to give in to them. Now, the problem is that uh, if we as parents be- begin to idolize people who should not be role models, uh, we are just enforcing the beliefs of our children. Recently, I heard someone who is a Christian say, well, I am a fan of, and they mentioned some country western singer. Well, I, I think if I, I, if I really question the individual, the individual would say, well, I'm not really a fan. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it would be that way. But, but on the other hand, taking the statement at face value, Christians should not be fans, which is an abbreviation of a fanatic, for anyone outside of Jesus Christ. you agree with that? Praise God. So the Bible tells us in 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 11, that the fleshly lusts, that we should abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. There is a problem that's taking place within us constantly. Paul talks about this in in Romans, the seventh chapter. Now what I'd like to do is go all the way back to the book of Judges in this study today, and I'd like to take a look at some things that happened in the book of Judges. Now you know the book of Judges covers a period of about 450 years, so when you read the book of Judges, which you can read in a 30-minute setting, uh, you have to understand that you're covering a lot of time a lot of space lapsed. But basically, when you look at the book of Judges, you could, because the books were not titled in the Old Testament until they were canonized by the Jews, so you could take where you had the book of Judges, you could write the book of failure. This was a very uh, fatal time in the history of the Jews. Now, the Bible tells us in the second chapter of the book of Judges, the tenth verse, And also all that generation were gathered into their fathers. There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. It should be a burning desire of every mother that's here. And I know we have ladies who are not mothers, but specifically to the mothers to somehow take the values of your life and somehow emit those, give those to your children. I think a mother plays such an important role. Now, my dad never served the Lord until after I was grown and married, so the story perhaps would have been somewhat different had he have served the Lord. But I I can truthfully say as I stand here today that I'm here as a result of a godly mother, a mother which feared the Lord. Uh, She was very strong-willed at times, yet very gentle at times. There were times in which she'd just say no, and she'd be very, very emphatic about it. There were other times in which she'd say, now sit down, let me reason with you. I've heard my mother call my name many, many times in prayer. My mother took me to Sunday school when I was a young man. In my teenage years, in which I became extremely wayward, my mother just stuck with me. 
She was doing her dead level best to take the values that she cherished so very much and put those into me. She not only told me that certain things were right and wrong, she told me why certain things were right and why certain things were wrong. My dad worked an evening shift most of the years in which I, uh, I, I was a teenager. But uh, my mom would sit up sometime till 11, 12 o'clock at night talking to me. She said, now, son, this is the way it is, and this is the way it is, and this is the way it is. Now, if my mom were here today, I'm sure that there would be certain things that my mom and I would disagree on. I have rethought some of those things and reconsidered some of those things. But I want to, you to know that, that I never took one thing that she said lightly. And the things that I would disagree with my mom on today, I would still honor her and respect her and love her and show much kindness and appreciation, even in the areas in which she and I would disagree. She drew some things, some guidelines for us as children, but she always drew them on the safe side. And I think the Scripture teaches us that. Paul in Romans 8 tells us this. He says, now, of course, he's dealing with meats, and he's dealing with days. When, what day do we worship the Lord on? Some said Saturday, that's the Lord's day. Others said the first day of the week. They had their reason for this. They went on to meet. Some of the people wanted to observe the Old Testament law, the, the ceremonial law. They, were, they pretty much agreed was, you know, that it was finished at Calvary, but... They had some problems with this. Paul came along and said, but the, the thing about it is, even you people who are eating meats, and you're not thoroughly convinced that there's liberty in the Spirit. And, and Paul was a great teacher of grace and liberty that came through the New Testament uh, uh, church. He said, if you eat anything that you're in doubt of to you, he said, it is sin. Now the logic that Paul was using is this. That when you do something and you don't know whether it's right or wrong, even if what you're contemplating, if you go ahead and do it, and if it is right, God still counts it as being wrong. And the reason why is because if you're not thoroughly convinced in your own heart that what you're doing is safe, God says you are willing to jeopardize your relationship with me over this activity, whatever it is. And if in the event you are willing to jeopardize without figuring this thing out, Paul says God's going to count it as sin simply because of your attitude that's manifest in your relationship with your Redeemer. And so as a result, my mom drew some very safe guidelines for us children. Sister Rutherford could tell you that. And we had a very strict code of ethics that we lived by. Sometimes we openly defied those things. My sister, along with myself, we did not live for the Lord much during our teenage years. And we openly defied some of those things. When we did this, well, Mom had a way of dealing with us, a very kind way, a very constructive way of dealing with us. I used to slip off to the ball games, and I'd slip underneath the fence. And uh, she thought I was going to see a friend. Well, I was, but the friend was going to the ball game, so I went to the ball game. But I didn't have any money, so he paid his fare, and I slipped underneath the fence. Well, she found out I was doing this. And she took care of it, but she had such a kind way. She'd set me down and 
and talk to me about it. And then she'd say, well, we're going to pray about it. Well, she'd bow her head and pray a little bit. She'd go in her room, though, and my room was close by, and she'd pray. Oh, my, would she pray. And here I was in this room. I used to just cover my head up, and I didn't want to hear her pray for me. Oh, when she prayed for me, she had a way of moving me. So the book of Judges tells us that the, the, the problem was that there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. Somebody had to let down on the teaching. Now, I'm a firm believer of this, that people will believe whatever you instruct them and teach them. Now, if you don't believe that, look at how many Jehovah's Witnesses are in the world. Look at how many Mormons are in the world. Look at how many Catholics are in the world. Look at how many Baptist people that are in the world. See, people will believe anything you tell them. So if someone stands behind the pulpit, and if they teach that long enough, people will believe it. If a mother or a dad in a home will instruct long enough, children will believe it. But there arose a generation that somehow they just didn't value things that they had been taught. Or maybe they valued them, but not to the point that they would go through all of the pain and trouble that you have to go through in instructing children. When we dedicate children at the altar, we say it's really the dedication of parents because it requires more discipline on the part of the parent to discipline the child. And it really does. It's just really, real easy to, to let children become wayward. Now, my wife and I, most of you know this, we, we own horses and we like to ride horses. And my wife has a very well-trained horse, but she lets a lot of different people ride that horse. And all of a sudden, this horse that, that was, it is a very valuable horse and a very well-trained horse, all of a sudden, she decided that she'd like to start going back to the barn. And she'd go back to the barn, back to the barn. And then when you start to mount the horse to ride, the horse would start walking off before you got on, on the horse. And uh, what's, what's happening here? And the reason why this happened is because the horse did not understand the value of woe. You follow what I'm saying? See, if you're riding a horse and you want the horse to slow down, you don't say woe because woe means what? Stop. And if your horse is going too fast, well, you don't want him to stop. If he stopped right then in his tracks, what, what would happen to you? But if he's going too fast and you don't want him to go so fast, you simply say steady or slow. And you have little cues that you make with your feet. You have little cues that you make with your fingers. You vibrate the rein one back from the other. And the horse can feel this in his mouth. And you sit flat and hard down in the saddle because... There's more pressure back then, it'll just slow down. But don't ever say woe unless you mean woe. The best trained horse in the world, if you say woe and you don't mean it, he knows you don't mean it. And he will not stop. He will not stop. He knows that you don't mean that. And so as a result, after a while, it's woe, 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 woe. And the horse becomes insensitive to woe. Now, you know, it's really that same way in children. When you say no to a child, no should always mean what? No. And if you're saying no and you really don't mean no, the child knows that you don't mean no. 
But one of these days you will mean no. And when you say no, the child, because he has not been taught to observe that simple command, when you say no and you mean no, no does not mean no to the child. So it takes a lot of discipline to be a parent. And the problem here is that they did not see the value of transmitting their teachings to their children. So, woe didn't mean woe. Basically, that is it. Two scriptures found in the book of Judges that are the key scriptures of this book. Judges 17, 6. The Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, that's the key scripture of the book. And the scriptures quoted again. The last chapter, the last verse, Judges 21, 25, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So 450 years, the book of failure, ends in this summary. The, the reason why that Judges was a failure is because that nobody took the initiative to enforce anything. And everybody just did what they wanted to do. So this is the book of failure. Now, <clears throat> we know that when everybody does what they want to do, something strange then takes place in them. Now, I'd like you to turn to the book of Romans, the first chapter, and we're not going to read all of this, but we're going to read some of it and talk about some of this. The Bible tells us in Romans 1, and we're going to spend some time in Romans 1, 2, and 3, the Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly, clearly understood, clearly seen, pardon me, being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Nature testifies of the greatness of God. Nature testifies of the validity of God. Now verse 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. In other words, they began to deify or idolize or they became fanatics of worldly figures. That's the problem. Now, if you look in verse 24, the Bible says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Now, <clears throat> The phrase gave them up, it simply means God gave up on them. That's what it means. Now, when does God give up on someone? Each one of us has our own will. And there are times when parents, when children reach a certain age and parents cannot control them, they are pretty much wise in stepping back and saying, 
There is a time which I have to open my hand and let my child go. You follow what I'm saying? He has made a choice not to obey. Now you may say, oh, Brother Grant, I'd never do this. But our society will enforce that on you. And I've heard people say, oh, I'll always make my child do everything I want him to do. I've had a lot of people say that, but you can't always do that. You say, I will. Well, wait till he decides not to. There are all kinds of recourses. And you see, we are all the children of God. And God has given us our own will. There is a battle that is fought every day on the neutral grounds between God and Satan on the neutral grounds of your will. You determine who wins that battle over your mind and your soul. And God will only lose so many battles. He will only surrender so many battles over your soul until He says, okay, if that's what you want to do, do it. Now this is what Paul was talking about in Hebrews 10th chapter, verse 26, when he says, If we sin willfully after we have come to a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now basically what he's saying, now this is not dealing with premeditated sin. I've heard this uh, explanation that if you premeditate something and you decide you're going to do it, then the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ does not cover that. Well, if the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will never under any circumstance or any reason cover premeditated sin, nobody would ever be saved. Well, what the Scripture is saying is that as long as you are willfully sinning, in other words, you have given your mind over to yourself and you've given your mind over to the, uh, the voice of Satan that speaks within you, what happens then? Now, there may be 95% of the times of your decision-making in which you give yourself to God. But if there's one area in which you say no to, and you willfully say no, and you go ahead and you do that, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, Paul is saying, it doesn't make any difference how powerful you think the blood of Jesus Christ is. The blood of Jesus Christ was intended to cover only sin that has been repented of where the will has been directed back toward God. But if you're willfully doing something, you know it's wrong, but you, under no circumstances, try to make amends for that. Christ's blood may cover 95% of all of your activities, but there's going to be 5% that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will never cover because it was not designed to cover it. It was never designed to cover willful sin. So when you're doing something willfully and you keep doing that over and over and over, as precious as your relationship with God may appear to you to be, God says, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give up on them in that area. There's no need of talking anymore. So when the Bible says God gave them up, the Bible is simply saying He gave them up in what area? The Bible says to uncleanliness through the lust of their own bodies, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Now, they became reprobates in time, but they were not reprobates to start with. 
There was just an area of their life in which they would not listen to God and they became, they became fanatics and f- fans of certain individuals. Therefore, instead of glorifying God, what did they do? They glorified man. They wanted to keep up with the Joneses. In other words, if this is what this lady's going to wear, that's what I'm going to wear. If this is the kind of car this person's going to drive, that's the kind of car I'm going to drive. I'm going to keep up with everybody else. And I'm going to measure myself by them, not by the word of the Lord. Now, what I'd like to do then, I'd like to just leave this momentarily. And I want to talk about the doctrine of grace because this is something that I feel that is very, very important for us to understand. So if you would turn with me to Titus, the book of Titus, the second chapter. We will address this. Now, <coughs> this, is, this is something that, that is mentioned a lot in our day. I hear a lot of people making statements like this. Well, Brother Grant, what about grace? I just want to talk about grace just for a moment. Because grace is something that I believe that is drastically misunderstood. And then, of course, there's a lot of misinformation given about grace. There's some people that just simply don't understand it. How does the second chapter, verse 11, the Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now the word grace is taken from two Greek words. I say two. One Greek word that has two meanings. It means unmerited favor, and it also means the divine influence of the heart. Now you know that we were all made in the image and the likeness of God. The Bible tells us that. So there are certain things that we do by nature that align ourselves with God. Now we understand the voice of the evil one that speaks to us and we all have tendencies to gravitate toward that which is evil. But basically, I think, when you take a careful look at the Bible, that even though we are of fallen nature... Our structure, our character structure has tumbled as a result of the sin of the garden. That there are many, many things that are involved in the natural makeup of man that we have to credit to God. And we can't get around that. Now notice what the scripture says. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now verse 12 teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So when God influences the heart and we begin to walk with God, our relationship with God is like a marriage. Now, a couple of weeks from now, we'll be having a a marriage in our church, and I'm sure that I will quote some scriptures from the Bible or read some relative to a husband and a wife. But the Bible says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In other words, there is a oneness that, that takes place. Now, we're not... Here's something else that opposes our American culture. We're not taught in our American culture to be oneness, to have oneness. You as ladies are being taught 
by many movements in our world. You have your own rights. You have your own mind. Live your own life. Make your own career. You may say, Brother Grant, do you believe all that? I do believe that you have your own life. I believe that. But I also believe that the life that God has given you as a Christian, if you are married, it can never be considered separate and apart from your relationship with your husband. That the two of you should reach an agreement. The two of you should decide. Now, I believe that the husband is the head of the household, but I also believe that Paul in his speaking in Roman, in Ephesians 5, I believe when he said submitting yourselves one to another, that he's talking about husbands and wives. That there are times in which we submit to each other. And we do that because our spirits are one. Our relationship with God is that way. We become submissive to Him and He harmoniously blends Himself with us and we become one. How can two walk together except they be agreed? The prophet Amos said, So basically, the Bible is saying the grace of God, that divine influence of the heart, that is at work in you, is at work in you. All reasons conduct yourself as becometh husband and wife. Basically, what we're saying is, if you're if you're going to be looking at somebody else, this is not the step you're going to you should take. Have you made up your mind that the woman that stands with you at the altar is the one that will get capture your time and capture your attention and capture your affection and capture your love? Now, if you're still in love with somebody across town, forget it. You're not ready for that step. Isn't that right? And the Bible is saying in our relationship with God that that divine influence of the heart that is inside of us is inside of us for a reason. That God loves us and He wants us to focus, his, our, focus our attention on Him at all times. Under all circumstances, God is number one in our life. Now what I want to do is just go back to Romans, the first chapter where we were. Let's uh, forget uh, chapter 1 momentarily. Let's go to chapter 2. Now we talk about the things that we do that are natural. We do it because all of us were made in the image and the likeness of God. Notice in Romans, the second chapter, verse 14, the Bible says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. Now, basically what he's saying, the Jews had the oracles of God. They had the tables of stone. They had the Ten Commandments. Gentiles did not have that. But yet Gentiles did have the ability to set up the structure of their own governments. And when they set up the structure of their own governments, whoever was dictating to them would put certain things in their law that aligned themselves with, with the law of God. In other words, who told the Gentiles it was wrong to commit murder? Where did they get that? 
Paul says, that came out of nature. That's a part of their structure. God told them. That was the law of God that seemed to speak inside of them. That's where they got it. They got it from God. Now, he said the problem, however, is this. That the Gentile world that had the law of God, they transgressed against nature. They transgressed against the voice of God until the voice of God didn't speak to them anymore. Consequently, the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use. See that which nature taught them. The natural use to that which is against nature. God told these Gentiles certain things that was right. Who told them they shouldn't shoot one another? Who told them they shouldn't steal from each other? Where did that come from? Paul says, well, that came out of God. God put that in their nature. That's what he did. He put it right in their nature. Now, he goes on to chapter 3, and then he says, the, the, the problem, however, with, with not just the Gentiles, but the whole world, the Jews being very natural like the Gentiles, but yet being further reinforced by the commandments of God, disobeyed the natural use and the commandments of God also, both. So as a result, he said, they transgressed and they became guilty. The Gentiles transgressed, they became guilty. After a while, the Bible tells us in Romans, the third chapter, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know... That what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Now the big question is, who, who was under the law? He said the whole world was under the law. Some had it naturally and some had the table of stones. But this is what he says. They're all under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Why? Because they transgressed against the law of God. Now, let me say this before I go any further. Any concept of grace that has for itself any goal outside of total separation from the world is in error. Any concept of grace. It doesn't make any difference how you believe grace. What you've heard about grace, what you hear on the radios from evangelical preachers, what you hear from fundamentalist preachers, any concept of grace that does not have as an ultimate goal separation from the world is in error. I say it is in error. He goes on to say, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then he goes to chapter 5, keeps the same subject alive. He talks about justification. Then he goes on, he talks about grace again. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many shall be made righteous. More of the law entered by the offense, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
That simply means when there's more sin out there and when the devil is working overtime, what happens to us? The voice of God, the divine influence of the heart, the grace of God will work overtime in you. That's what he's saying. So if there are many, many voices in the world that are calling and begging for you and calling and begging for your children, remember, the voice of God is going to get louder. That's what he's saying. Now, in order to satisfy, evidently, some of the things and misconcepts that they had about grace, Paul goes on to say, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In other words, Calvary and grace, he said, are not licensed to sin. It's for the reason why we ought not to sin. Because it gives us power over sin. Then he goes into the new birth. Know ye not that so many of us, as we're baptized unto Jesus Christ, were baptized unto his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now you see, this business of separation is so beautiful when you put it in its proper focus or its proper perspective. The truth of the matter is, we became separated from sin when we repented. Now, no man cometh unto the Father except the Spirit draweth him. So that divine influence that's in our heart is telling us over and over and over, you shouldn't do this, but we do it anyway. That's why we become guilty. We become guilty because we say no to God. But some preacher stands behind the pulpit and preaches. We respond to that beckoning, drawing call of God and when we come to repent. Repentance in the Scripture is a death. It's comparable to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul said, therefore, we are crucified with him. So repentance is not just asking God to forgive you of sin, but this is when sin is actually slain. It's killed. It's mortified in our bodies. Now, James talks about death. He talks about faith and works. But he said, the reason why that you need to have works with your faith, because he said, don't you know how death is, that death is separation? You see, the word death actually means separate, or it means separation. He said, so as the soul without the body is death. In other words, when we say someone dies, we simply mean someone is separated. A marriage dies in separation. A relationship with God dies when we reunite ourselves with the world. So when we come to the altar and we say, God, forgive me, Lord, of all of my sin, this is when the sin is separated from us. It is crucified. It's like a, a man whose body is brought in, but his spirit, his soul has departed. We only see the 
empty shell, the tabernacle, the house. But something's missing here. That's what death means. And separation is natural for all born-again believers. Because your first and initial step to God, when you, says, when you said, Lord, forgive me, basically what you're doing, you're separating yourself from your sin. You see, that's when it starts. And you will find almost everything that you believe in your Christian walk with God has to do with your relationship with God as it relates to separation from the world. Well, let's go to Deuteronomy 22. This is a passage of Scripture that a lot of Pentecostals have quoted. Let's go there. I think I'm already over time, Sister Barnett. I started a little late. Can you just give me just a few more minutes? I, I just want to point out something. See, the beauty of the law of separation in the Old Testament is that it, the law of separation dealt with relationships. Deuteronomy 22, in most Bibles it's outlined the law of brotherhood, but it's really the law of relationships. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in, shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if thou know him not, then thou shalt bring it unto thine own house, and it shall be with thee until thy brother's brother seek after it. Thou shalt restore it to him again. In other words, don't take anything that belongs to somebody else. The reason why is because you will not have a relationship that is proper if you're taking things that belong to you, that do not belong to you. And this will hurt your relationship. In like manner shalt thou do with his ass, and so shalt thou do with his raiment. Now it goes on and talks about, talk about this. Now let's go on down and let's talk from verse 5 for a minute. A woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now the reason why that ladies should not put on men's garments and men put on ladies' garments, it has to do with relationships. In other words, God wanted to make a distinction between sexes. And he wanted certain roles to be adhered to in a certain way, that men should be strong, decisive, and masculine. And they should wear garments which would, would, which would enhance masculinity. On the other hand, a woman should be soft as silk and feminine. And she should wear garments that would enhance femininity. And any time that you do not follow this guideline, there will be the deterioration of that relationship. Now, you see, nature put that in a woman to be feminine. The call of God inside of her tells her that she is fulfilled when she follows that particular role model. 
Well, it doesn't make any difference what Farrah Fawcett's doing. You know, if she's your idol and you try to follow after her, you know what's going to happen? There will be a war that takes place inside of you. For worldly lust war against the soul. And you will find that all holiness standards in the New Testament was taught based upon the proper relationship with husband and wife. I can prove that scripturally. Look at the, look at the hair question in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Just, just turn there and look, look at it. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, Be ye followers also of me, even as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances I delivered them to you. But I would have you to know that the head of every woman is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. What's he doing? He's talking about the chain of command and then he goes into this relationship. Now doesn't he go on to say, if you will look in verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is glory to her. Nature teaches her that. He didn't stop there. He's saying this is true of a man, it's also true of a woman. The voice of God inside of her. The voice of God inside of the man teaches them that role model. And it's a very profound law, by the way. A very profound law. You can go to 1 Timothy 2 when it talks about holding the standards. What does it say here? In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh a woman professional godliness with good works, that the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not that a woman, I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But he goes into this relationship again. Doesn't Peter do this in his epistle? Turn there to second, First Peter 3. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives. That means behavior of their wives. Now, he goes on to say a lot about holding the standards. My whole point's not to get into that, but to show you that even the laws of God and the Bible that deal with holding the standards are predicated upon something as fragile as a relationship. And I use the word fragile because it can be broken so easily. Now he did say this, and this is certainly something we need to mention. Verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy woman also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now notice what happened. Whose daughters ye are. 
Now we're all the sons of Abraham by faith. But Peter says, isn't it also true that the New Testament woman is the daughter of Sarah if she adorns herself in like fashion in which Sarah adorned herself being in the right relationship with her husband? Isn't that what he's saying? Now the law of separation of Deuteronomy 22 has a lot of other things in it that are just practical. It says you should not plow an ox with an ass. In other words, if you take a little donkey and hook him up with a big oxen, would you have compatibility there? No. Now the oxen can pull a lot more than that simple little donkey. He's big. He weighs a thousand pounds. Little donkey probably weighs four hundred pounds. But if you want the donkey to be happy, just put him with another donkey. He'll do better. He'll fare better. They'll be compatible. It is even a known fact that when you sow seeds together, as beautiful flowers may be, flowers grow better with their own species. That is a known biological fact. It just works that way. And so all of Deuteronomy 22 is dealing with what? The law of relationship. And so as a result, you keep seeing this in the Bible about the natural use, the natural affection, that which is against nature. Now the problem is, this business of wanting to keep up with the Joneses, comparing ourselves with ourselves, we get so far off base. And it's easy then to justify by saying, well, I understand what you're saying, but you know, this sister does it all the time, and she appears to be so godly. You hear that all the time, don't you? You even hear statements like, well, Brother Grant said it, it must be right. You follow what I'm saying? It's not right because Brother Grant said it. We have to go to the manual of life, the Bible. Because basically, you know, I, I can't just—I can't understand people who say, "I—I I, I heard someone not too long ago say, I just hear so much about this holiness business. I just despise it." Well, you know, Paul talks about people who despise holiness. Now, I—I got to say, I despise some things that people say is holiness. But true holiness, I don't despise that. Now, how can we serve a holy God, go into a holy city, and despise holiness? That don't make sense, does it? And there are certain fences that you have to draw. Certain lines you have to draw and certain fences that you have to build. And you have to do that for the sake of your family, yourself and your family, to keep the evil one out. And I know I've heard this, I've heard this lately, people saying, well, we don't need fences, we need bridges. Bridges so we can reach the world. Well, you can have a wall city and still have a bridge. 
See, the bridge is for us to reach out. The walls are to protect. It's not to keep people in. It's to keep the others out. Could I also inform you that the holy city has four walls? And could I also inform you that it has 12 gates? And the gates, however, are for the going out of the children of God. But the walls represent protection. And could I also tell you that the Bible says there will be no sin that enters into that holy city, nor anything to defile it. And could I also tell you that those walls are named after precious jewels. And every wall of separation that you have, even though it may not be made of concrete, it may be very, very abstract from the standpoint of people being able to observe it. But every wall that you have when you say no to the devil is really a, a precious stone to you. It really is. You want to keep up with the Joneses? No. I really think that we have matured enough in the things of the world we need to mature ourselves in the things of God. Didn't even Paul say, didn't even Paul say, concerning the things of the world, I would, he said, that you be ignorant concerning the things of the world. Don't even know anything about it. You don't need to know anything about the world. Let's cleave to God and let's love God. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord.